Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and to turn with me to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We had an amazing time this summer going through the Psalms. We covered some familiar ones. We covered some ones that are not as well known. We had a great time letting God's Word pour over our souls, minister to us in amazing ways. And I I praise God for what He has done in our church over this summer. But it's time now to go back to our regular, regularly scheduled program, if you will. Our intermission has ended. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to dive back into John. When we first looked at studying a book of the Bible after the book of Philippians last year, I brought it before the elders and I said, what do you think we should study? And we all agreed a gospel. And so the next question was, which gospel? And we all agreed the Gospel of John. And when we first started this sermon series through the Gospel of John, at the beginning of this calendar year, I told you that the reason I wanted to study the Gospel of John is I wanted us to see Jesus clearly, to be like him, to be transformed by him, and to see him in all of his glory and be changed by it. We looked at Jeremiah 2. We started by looking at the fact that we have exchanged our glory for that which does not profit. We have hewn out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. And since we look to other things to be satisfied, the issue is not that we need to um, start worshiping. We are already worshipers and we're worshiping things that are not God. We need to be worshiping Jesus Christ and him alone. And so I wanted to go back to this amazing gospel and start staring at Jesus. We have spent eight sermons thus far in this gospel and we've gotten through two chapters and it was a good break for us and I wanted to break right before chapter three because we're going to slow down a little bit in chapter three there is so much there that we need to hear God speak to us about about the new birth about how we have been saved about how to share the gospel with others there's so much that we need to just slow down and dive into chapter three and we're going to do that next week we're going to start our little mini series if you will through John three But before we do that, I wanted to take this morning as a transition between Psalms and between going back to John and just get a summary of where we've been thus far. Um, If you weren't able to make all eight of the sermons, then hopefully this can help give a little bit of a summary. I want to remind us, refresh our memory on where we have come. And what we're going to do this morning is very different from what we normally do. Normally we'll take a chunk of scripture, we'll dive down deeply into it, we'll Find the main point of the text and we'll apply it to our lives. What we're going to do this morning is we are literally going to go through chapter 1 and 2, read the whole thing, and do what the Old Testament describes the priests doing. The priests would get up and they would open the law and they would read and give the sense. They would give the meaning. They would help identify this is what this means, but they would read through We even see Jesus doing this in the New Testament. We see Jesus getting up, reading a passage of Isaiah, explaining this is what that means and I am that person, and then walking away. So we're really going to go back to kind of an early church feel here and take a lot of scripture since we've already um, been able to dive down deep into it uh, with these eight sermons. We're going to just kind of skim over things with the purpose of getting our footing yet again as we enter into chapter 3. Cool? So, background for you. John, 
writing later. Uh, he is not one of the synoptic gospels. Remember, we talked about Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic gospels, sin, the same optic scene. They're seeing the same things. They're talking about the same things. They're discussing the same things. They were all written very uh, similarly. They were all written with similar accounts. And they were all written right around the same date. John comes decades later and says, I want to write a gospel account as well. And now that I know what's in circulation based on reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I know that everybody's read that in in the early church, I'm going to write something different. I'm going to give you a different perspective. That's why 90%, about 90% of John is unique to John. In John, we have nothing about the birth of Jesus. We have nothing about his early life, his baptism, his temptation, his transfiguration, the Garden of Gethsemane, the ascension, etc., etc., etc. We don't have those things because John knew the early church already knew those things with the three synoptic gospels. He didn't need to repeat that. He's probably writing between 80 and 90 AD. And he's writing to show us a heavenly perspective. There are no parables in his gospel. He's showing us a, a heavenly perspective of Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted to study. Who wrote it? John wrote it. John wrote this book. He was a, one of the sons of thunder. You remember he wanted to call down fire upon the Samaritans and kill them. Um, if there's a qualification for who should be writing Bible books, that doesn't seem like the qualification that I would have. You know, make sure they want to kill people. Jesus calls him to himself, transforms his heart so much so that John, 80 times in this gospel, speaks of love. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He begins to orient everything in his being around the love of Jesus that he knows very clearly because he lived and ministered alongside of him and the love that he needs to have for other people. In his letters, in 1 John, he calls his church his children, You are my loved ones. You are my children. I love you. I care about you. No more son of thunder radically transformed. Eighty times he speaks of love. Another main theme in this gospel account is truth. He mentions it 25 times, and he mentions truth 20 other times in his other writings. Um, So a total of 45 times John's going to write ultimately about truth. So love, truth, and then 80 times talking about love, 100 times He uses the word in this gospel account, believe. That's a huge theme. That's kind of the main point. That's his thesis. You remember John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. That's the thesis statement of John's book. I am writing these things so that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by knowing that and believing that, believing in who he is, you'd have life in his name. That's the whole point of his book. He's writing to get us to believe that Jesus is who he truly claims to be. And that is our problem. If we truly believed who Jesus was through and through, we would never sin again. The reason why we sin is we doubt who Jesus has claimed that he is. Is he all sufficient to meet all of my needs? When we go after other lesser gods, when we go after other idols, we are saying, I don't truly believe that. That's why we wanted to study this book. We want to believe that. We want to know who Jesus is and believe it fully. It's not just an evangelistic book. A lot of people think, well, this is so that people would believe. Well, I already believe and I'm good to go. It is evangelistic, but it's more than that because the daily Christian life is one of belief. Do you believe and will you follow him? So if we put it all together, the thesis for John, you could kind of put these theme, these thematic words together. He wants us to believe the truth about who Jesus is so that we can enter into a relationship of love with Jesus. 
He wants us to believe that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And right from the beginning, he does that. He proves who Jesus is. And I remember we talked, I loved diving into verses 1 through uh, 3, thinking, why did he start this way? Why didn't he start with the birth announcement? Why didn't he start with the baptism? Why didn't he go to all of these things that the other Gospels do? Number one, because the other Gospels did them. But number two, I, I believe that John doesn't want us to go through what he went through. As a disciple following Jesus, he's constantly saying, this has to be the Son of God. And then the next day, yeah, but he's just a man. Maybe he's not the Son of God. And then the next day, no, he's the Son of God. He just raised somebody from the dead. And then the next day, yeah, but he's just a man. He's going hungry. He's sleeping. He's just like us. Constantly questioning and wrestling, who is this man? The disciples are always saying that. Who is this guy? John doesn't want us to ask that question. Right from the beginning, John says, no, Jesus is God. And I don't want you to have that doubt. So let's start with uh, verses 1 through 3 here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So in the beginning, words that are very familiar to us from Genesis chapter 1. Before anything was, God was. Before anything was created, God was there. Um, In the beginning was the Word, before anything had come into being. And the Word was with God, so we already have two persons of the Trinity right there. The Word is with God, and the Word is God, so if the Word is with God, we have two people, and that word with is literally facing each other, toward one another, in a relationship with each other. So Jesus is with God, toward God, facing God, and Jesus is God. We have two people in the Trinity there. He was in the beginning with God before anything came into being. So verse 3, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And we, we spent a whole sermon on this, talking about how important it is to know the deity of Jesus Christ. Um, cults take the, the deity of Jesus and twist it, right? They take it and they twist it. Even some of their Bible translations would say that the word was a God, not God through and through, not fully God. Um, many cults would say that Jesus was a created being, even though that doesn't work with verse 3. All things came into being through him. If everything that exists exists because Jesus created it, then if he is a created being, that verse can't make sense because he would have had to have created himself because all things came into being through him. You can speak with your Mormon friends. You can speak with your Jehovah's Witness friends. You can speak with them not even using verse 1. You can go to verse 3 and see that Jesus was uncreated. Uh, We talked about the grammatically incorrect way to say this. Uh, Before anything was, Jesus was always wasing, right? He was always wasing. He was always there. There was never a time when he was not. And frankly, that false doctrine has been permeating the church from the beginning of the church. That's why Paul has to write to say, no, Jesus is the uncreated one. He is the eternal one. John writes that to say, Jesus is God, very God. If you are outside of creation and you create everything, you are God. Jesus is God. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. So in Jesus Christ is life, and that life is what we need to see, what we need to savor, and his light shines in the darkness, 
and the darkness did not comprehend it. We're talking about that's a bad translation of that word. The darkness can't overpower him. Jesus comes into the world and all of the powers of hell want to destroy him. And in a sense, they win. Even though God is the one who crushes his son, in a sense, they win. The powers of darkness win in that moment when Jesus is killed. But the darkness cannot overpower him. It can't hold him down. Uh, From the moment that he is born to the moment that he is raised from the dead, no power of darkness can touch him and overpower him to the place where they shut him out. That was our intro, looking at who Jesus was, his deity, his purpose, why he came, and why we should believe in him and trust in him. Then verse 6, there's this little aside. There came a man sent from God, whose name was John. And we talked about verse 6. I love verse 6. There came a man. Uh, The word for came is a very specific word in the Greek that means um, started to come into being, uh, had a beginning point. It's a huge contrast. Jesus never had a beginning. And then there comes this man who had a beginning. There was a moment at which He wasn't existing, and then he started to exist because he was created. He was sent from God. His name was John. We know him as John the Baptist. We could call him John the Baptizer. John, the gospel writer, would call him John the Witness. He's going to use that word, witness, or testify a lot. The whole point of this aside is to say to the readers, John the Baptist, though he is a prophet, a man sent by God, and a godly man at that, Remember Jesus said that he's the most blessed man in the world. He's the most amazing man. Um, People used to follow him and say, you remember the the disciples of John the Baptist. Excuse me, Jesus isn't fasting. We are fasting. He's wrong. And John said, no, no, no. He's the reason that we're here. Like, follow him. People say, John, your your disciples are, are following another person. What should we do? Go to that other person. That's the guy that you're supposed to go to. So John, the gospel writer, is trying to make a very clear contrast. John the Baptist is not the Messiah. He's the forerunner. He's the herald. And he came as a witness, verse 7, to testify about the light. He came to testify so that all might believe through him. That's his job. He's not looking for people to believe him but believe through him to the one that he's testifying about. In verse 8, he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. John is getting a little bit redundant here, but it's for the point of saying Jesus Christ is set apart in a different category. And John, even as John the Baptist is going to say about himself, the one who comes after me is before me. Uh, The one who comes after me, the one who was born after me, I'm older than Jesus, and yet he's older than me. Um, John's whole, John the Baptist's whole thrust is to point people to Jesus. And we talked about that. We talked about testifying about who Jesus is, the message that we need to bring to people about who Jesus is. My wife and I had the privilege on Wednesday night. We didn't even know this thing existed. There's this huge farmer's market that happens in the Northridge Mall on Wednesday night. We're like way late on that one. Um, showed up to CPK because somebody had given us a gift card and it just looked like we were not going to get a parking spot. Nothing was going to happen. I, we almost turned around and left. And uh, when we got there, we were talking about church stuff. And we, as an elder board and with the deacons, had been talking about evangelism. And we just kind of said, we need to share the gospel. This is perfect. There's all these people just hanging out. This is great. So at CPK, we 
We invited people to church that were at the next table next to us. We invited our waiter to church. The manager came over, talked to us. Not about that. Um, but uh, turned out to be a believer. We invited him to church because he actually lives um, pretty far away, but sometimes he works on Sunday. So we had a great time just being able to talk with these people. And then we went out into uh, the farmer's market. And, and I'm thinking about this passage, testifying about the light. Everyone that I can see, as far as I know, because I don't know these people, they're walking in darkness and they need the light. I am not the light. I am testifying about the light. Jesus is the light. And I'm constantly trying to say, look to him. And so we, we were walking through this uh, farmer's market and this nice young man um, stopped me, works for a solar company, and um, said, do you want to you know, purchase solar equipment? Um, our roof, those of you who have been to our house, our roof is just about to collapse. So I said, I don't think if you put a panel on top of our roof, I don't think it's going to hold. We started getting into a conversation. He gave me a business card. I figured, hey, here's a business card for you. Um, we started talking about church, found out he's a believer. Um, found out, so as I'm diving in to share the gospel with him, and my wife's diving in to share the gospel with this man's wife, we come to find out that these people are believers, and we actually know who they are. I don't know if you guys went to um, the Chelsea Moon concert that was at the bridge. That's, it was Chelsea Moon. We were talking with her, and we were talking with her husband. So we were talking about hymns. I was saying, yeah, we're going to go through How Firm a Foundation on Sunday. And she's like, that's one of my favorite songs. It was great. But all of it reminded me of this. Pray, first of all, let us be clear. This, this culture is messed up, and it is going down fast. But just as Elijah was very distraught and depressed and God said, no, there are so many that have not bowed the knee to Baal. One of the most encouraging things about Wednesday night is there are so many who have not bowed the knee to Baal. I mean, out of the nine people that we invited to come to our church, five of them were believers. So we won the majority on just a Wednesday night. Praise the Lord. We're not alone. But secondly, as I look out and I see these people are walking in darkness, we need to engage them. We need to speak to them. We need to share the light with them. That's what John did. And verse 9, there was the true light, which coming into this world enlightens every man. It opens, it, first of all, it gives the opportunity for salvation to every man. But second, it enlightens in a very specific way, as we're going to look at in John 3, those who would believe in Jesus. Jesus was in the world. So he's God, but he's also a human in the world. The world was made through him and the world did not know him. That, that statement is just mind-boggling. Verse 10, Jesus was in the world even though he made the world. He stepped into his creation. Remember we talked uh, about all the stars. We talked a lot about uh, science and all of, how amazing this creation is. And the one who made it all steps into the world and people go, who are you? We don't care about you and we want you dead. He was rejected. He came to his own, verse 11, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So we talked in verse 12, believing is receiving. Those are used synonymously. Those who received him and those who believed in his name. So the question is not, do you believe in Jesus? The question is, what kind of belief do you have? Because there's a believing that says, I believe the things about you. We talked about the demons. The demons know, James talks about, the demons know more about God than we do. They, they believe those things are reality and are truth. 
but they don't receive Jesus as, as treasure. The belief that they have about Jesus makes them hate him more instead of turning into affections and a greater love for him. So, Jesus gives the right to become children of God. This is really the precursor to John 3, these two sentences. Jesus gives the right to become children of God. We don't gain that right. We don't have any work on our own that we could do to gain access to God. And that's verse 13. Who were born not of blood. So it's not of your ethnicity. It's not of your race. It's not if you're a Jew. That's not what matters. The Pharisees are not going to like what Jesus says here. Because the Pharisees thought, because I am a, a child of Abraham, I automatically enter into the kingdom of heaven. And they're going to be told, no, you need to repent. You need to believe. They're not born of blood. They're not born of the will of the flesh. They're not born of the will of man. There's no religion that can get you to God. There's no ability on your own to to earn God's favor. It's only of God, verse 13. That's the, the precursor to John 3, because we're going to see it's only of God that any of us are saved. It's not of us. Verse 14, the word became flesh. So God is a human and is still God, very God. He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. John's going to start using pictures from the Old Testament. He tabernacled among us. We saw his glory. We beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We talked about what it means for God to be called, for Jesus to be called the Son of God. Son of God means equal to God. Remember we talked about son can mean two things to a Hebrew mind. It can either mean uh, that you are the offspring and descendant of, which that absolutely can mean. Um, but this case, again, certain cults would take it to mean that God the Father had a physical son, a created son, and that son is Jesus. That would be wrong. The other way that you can understand son, and it's used several different places in Psalms, it's used in the Gospels. Remember, Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. It's not that hell had a baby and his name was Judas. It's equal to, uh, equal to all that hell encompasses. So when we see the term son of God, it's equal to God. It's a title that means Jesus is God. And he's filled with grace and with truth. Verse 15, John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I just, I love how incredibly complex and confusing, and yet at the very same time, how simple the Bible is. That statement just makes no sense. He comes after me and existed before me. What? But it makes absolute sense. Jesus was born of a virgin. He came into this world, and this world rejected him. But when he was born was not when he began. He never had a beginning. Verse 16, of his fullness we have all received in grace upon grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him We talked about Moses. This is Moses-esque language. Jesus tabernacled with us to show forth his glory, and we beheld that glory, a glory that is so far beyond any glory that the law ever could have had. The law was given through Moses, but all the law could do was show us that we needed a Savior. The Pharisees are trying to earn salvation by keeping the law, 
And Jesus is going to say the whole point of the law is to show you you can't keep it and you can't earn salvation. The law was given through Moses. Jesus is going to come and give grace and truth in a completely different way. He's going to shatter their paradigm. No one's seen God, and yet we've seen God. We haven't seen the Father. No one can see the Father. The Father is spirit. But Jesus Christ has made him known, has explained him, has interpreted him. It's hermeneutics. He has explained. He has interpreted. He has preached the message of who God the Father is to us. This is the testimony, verse 19, of John when the Jews sent him to the priests and the Levites. So the prologue is done. Verse 19 picks up the, this next narrative. Um, the prologue that John wrote is finished, and verse 19 starts into John the Baptist's testimony. And John the Baptist's testimony, over the course of these next verses into the next chapter, they cover a week in Jesus' ministry. You remember we talked about there's a week that's here. Um, day one is... John 1, 19 through 28. Day 2 is John 1, 29 through 34. Day 3 is John 1, 35 through 42. We talked about this, this breakdown of the days. And we'll even see them as we go through. But we get a snapshot. We have a prologue of eternity past. And now we're going to get a snapshot of a week. And what happens during this week? First, we have John the Baptist giving testimony of who Jesus is. The Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to John to ask John, who are you? Verse 20, a little confusing. He confessed, did not deny, but confessed. That's kind of fuddled English. Um, that's the Jewish equivalent of, do you swear to tell the whole truth, nothing but the truth? That's, that's a, it's a very technical statement. He confessed, did not deny, but confessed. This is um, almost in a judicial sense. He is saying this is reality. This is truth. He says, I'm not the Christ, which he's not. Then they ask him, what then? Are you Elijah? He answers, I am not. I'm John. My name is John. There's no Elijah in my name. And we talked about how that can be a little bit confusing because Jesus even says he was John. If you had believed him, we talked about how theologians just like making, making up words to try and label things. And that's called a contingency prophecy. I don't know if you remember that. Um, they ask him, are you the prophet from Deuteronomy chapter 18? That prophet, the prophet that's going to come that was prophesied through Moses. He says, no, that's not me. Three times. No, no, no. So who are you? Verse 22, that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Um, remember, you're, you're not a part of our union here. Where's your union card? How did you get in, involved in this team? Like, excuse me, who let you do this? He says, verse 23, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. That's a prophecy from Isaiah. And they would have known that's the prophecy of the forerunner. I am pointing to the Messiah. I'm not the Messiah. I'm the forerunner to the Messiah. I'm the herald to say the Messiah has come. Follow him. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, verse 25, and said to him, that why then are you baptizing? If you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet, John answers saying, I baptize in water, but among you stands one whom you do not know. He's here. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things all took place in Bethany beyond the Jordan where John was baptizing. And the next day, verse 29, he sees Jesus coming. So that was day one. Day two, Jesus is going to encounter John. John's going to encounter Jesus. And John says, behold, 
the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the first message on the first day is he's in our midst somewhere and he's the one we should follow. Now, the second day, this is the Lamb of God following him. Verse 30, this is he on behalf of whom I said after me comes a man who has a higher rank than I preexisted before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. I'm preparing the way for him. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He is here, and that's him. Jesus is the Son of God. Verse 35, the next day, John is standing again. So this is day three with two of his disciples. He looks at Jesus as he walked and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said, what do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? This is where we had to do some harmonizing of the synoptic gospels with the gospel of John. You remember Matthew chapter four, verse 11 move straight from the temptations to the Galilean ministry of Jesus. If all we had were the synoptic gospels, we would think that Jesus's ministry is only a year and a half. But instead, because of John filling out those sections, we see that Jesus's ministry is three and a half years. And this part fits into John or John one through four fits in between the temptations and the Galilean ministry of Jesus. This would be called the Judean ministry of Jesus. So after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days without eating, fasting for 40 days, he shows back up and John the Baptist says, that's the Messiah. Just picture in your mind what Jesus would have looked like. Emaciated, sickly, 40 days, no food. And John says, that's the man, follow him. And that's why in my sanctified imagination, that's why his disciples say, when Jesus says, what do you seek at the end of verse uh, 20, 38, he says, where, what do you seek? And they say, where are you staying? Do you have food? Do you have a place to sleep? Do you have food to eat? Look at you. He says, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John, you shall be called Cephas, which translated as Peter. We talked again about evangelism. Imagine if Andrew had not done this. We wouldn't have had Peter. The best thing that you can do as a friend to somebody else is bring them to Jesus. We found him. I know who he is. And then we talked about what Jesus does once we enter into a relationship with him. Jesus has the right to change your identity through and through. He, he immediately says, you're Peter, I'm calling you Cephas. Um, you're, you're Simon, I'm calling, you, I'm calling you Peter. Changes his name, identity, instantly. That's what Jesus has the ability to do. That's what Jesus has the power to do. He has the authority to do that. He created you. He calls you to himself. He says, you're Simon, um, I'm giving you a new name. And there's no arguing, there's no fighting, there's no, but, but that's not my name. <laughs> um, my, my parents named me who are you? No, you're the son of God. You have the authority to give me that name. Verse 43 is the next day he purposed to go into Galilee, found Philip, and Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. 
Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael has a little bit of a problem. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? A little bit of prejudice there. Philip said, Come and see. Again, just come check it out. Come and see. Jesus can defend himself. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of, of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And that statement alone, we talked about what all that could mean. We don't know. There's speculation on it. But that statement is, is powerful enough for Nathanael to say, You are the Son of God. Something happened in that statement. Jesus is showing his glory. You are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. And Jesus says, Because, verse 50, I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That goes back to Genesis with Jacob, um, the, the vision that he had, angels ascending and descending on the ladder. What is Jesus saying? The mediator has come. Uh, heaven is shut. Earth is here. We have no ability to, to get to God. And now God has rend the heavens, open them up, and has made a way for us to get to him. And that way is that ladder, and that ladder is Jesus Christ. He is the mediator. He is the only way to get to heaven. He's the only truth, the only life. No one gets to the Father except through him. So that's the fourth day. The fifth and sixth day of this week, we don't have anything because they're traveling, and then day seven is chapter two, verse one. On the third day, after that day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. We, we talked about this. Um, Jewish weddings would go for a week. So it's not like this is one day and everybody is getting drunk. Uh, this is a long time and you're not supposed to run out of wine. That's a very bad thing. Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Again, it's not a, that's not a mean thing to say to his mother. That's a, a distancing thing to say. My authority comes from the Father, and he's the one that tells me what to do. My hour has not yet come. His mother has the best response. Whatever he says to you, do it. Even though his hour hasn't come, he still has the answers. <laughs> Talk to Jesus. He knows. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for Jewish customs of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. That's to show us this isn't some sort of a magic trick where there's a little bit of space left and Jesus just pours in really, really heavily concentrated wine and it goes throughout and dilutes and now it's wine. No, this is not, a mir this is not like a magic trick. This is a miracle. And so Jesus, in an amazing way, proves again who he is he says fill, fill him up to the brim and then he says draw some out now and take it to the head waiter they took it to him the head waiter tasted it and it had become wine didn't know where it came from but the servants who had drawn the water knew the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him every man serves the good wine first and when the people have drunk freely they're not going to be able to tell if this is bad wine anymore so he serves the poorer wine but you've kept the good wine until now this is the beginning of his signs that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Again, his glory is being seen. His glory is being put on display. 
We spent a lot of time talking about this miracle, this, uh, the first miracle that Jesus ever performed and why it is so important for us to know what's taking place here. Jesus is creating dead, fermenting things out of nothing. Um, Jesus is creating in such a way that glory is obvious. It's obvious. We talked about the, the note that John makes in verse 6, that these were Jewish custom uh, purification vats. Why does he mention that? Because Jesus is completely destroying this old system, this old religious system of law-keeping to earn God's favor. We talked about how Jesus is our perfect substitute. This poor guy, this poor bridegroom who is responsible but not much. All he has to do is get enough wine for uh, the, the wedding feast. And he fails. And there's no way to cover that up. And Jesus comes in and he says, yep, you failed. But I'll step in and I'll help you. And in his miracle, uh, just imagine this man's shock. When the head waiter walks up to him and starts to open his mouth, this man is thinking, he's cringing, oh, he's going to attack me, he's going to malign me. And he says, nothing but good things. It's the same way God the Father sees us. We look at him and we go, I have nothing but sin to offer you, and so you're just going to attack me, judge me, malign me. And Jesus says, let me cleanse you. And all we will hear from the Father is, well done, my good and faithful servant. You are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. God is pleased in us and in what we do because we are seen in Jesus' righteousness and Jesus' character. After this, he went down, verse 12, to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. In his righteous indignation, which we looked at even last week in Psalm 4, be angry but do not sin. This is Jesus. He is righteously indignant. He does not sin. He made a scourge of cords, drove them out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. And the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? You've just completely destroyed our economy. We talked about the bazaar of Annas. We talked about how deceitful and cheating um, that uh, tax system was and the system of your sacrifice is unclean. I'm sorry. Give it to me. You have to purchase a, a clean sacrifice from me that's really expensive. And then they would just go sell that other lamb that they had given back. Jesus says, no, my father's house is not a place of business. And so the Jews say, how can you do these things? Jesus answers, destroy this temple. This is my sign. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? So he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So again, the sign, the glory of God is displayed, and they believed. We talked about how the um, cleansing of the temple is a beautiful picture of what God does in our own hearts. Jesus hates our sin. And he does something about it. He drives it out with his own blood so that we can be cleansed before God. 
And then we ended in verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, was not, and this word in 24, my Bible says entrusting, the word is the same word as believed in verse 23. Jesus was not believing himself to them. He wasn't believing in them. They believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Why? A couple of reasons. He knew all men. And, verse 25, he didn't need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. And what is in man? Why are these people believing in verse 23? Why do they follow him? Because he is a miracle worker. They love that. He's a healer. This, this man is amazing. It's one of the reasons why Jesus will constantly tell people when he heals them, don't tell anybody about this. I don't want to be known primarily as a healer. I want to be known primarily as the Savior for your sins. That's your greatest need. You remember Mark chapter 2, the, the paralytic man dropped down on the roof And Jesus turns to him and he starts to speak. And what's the man expecting him to say? Son, walk. Rise up and walk. Instead, Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. That had to have been a letdown for this man. We did all this work. Uh, Imagine his poor friends up on the roof that that carried him up. They're listening. Son, your sins are forgiven. That's not what we're wanting. (laughs) Jesus knows that. What we are wanting is not our greatest need. Jesus knows our greatest need, and he's going to meet it. These people are staring at the signs that Jesus is performing. And we talked about what little toddlers do when you point. Look at the airplane. Look at the truck. Look at the butterfly. And you point to it. What do the kids do? They stare at your finger. They don't stare at what you're pointing at. And you just move their head. No, that. No, I'm not. Don't stare at my finger. Look at that. Jesus sees in our human nature that we see these miracles and we go, you're amazing and you can provide for me and you can take care of me. I mean, it wouldn't be a great thing to follow a Messiah into battle, into war against the Romans and know that if I get my head chopped off, this man can raise me from the dead. I'll follow him. So everyone is staring at the signs, but they're not letting the signs point them back to their need for Jesus, the one who's performing the signs. He knows what's in man. That's why verse 1 of chapter 3 says, Now there was a man who struggled with the exact same things. He's going to say, Rabbi, verse 2, We know that you have come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. He's just like the man in verse 23. That's where we've come thus far. And that's really the introduction uh, to my sermon this morning. Um, what I want to dialogue with you about is what all this means. What all this means. Let me just give you three points. Three main points from my time studying this, from our time together in John. Three implications from everything that we've studied thus far in these two chapters. Number one, God's glory is what changes us. God's glory is what changes us. We have beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. The disciples saw his glory when he performed the signs. Glory is what changes us. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 says that we behold the glory of God and we are transformed by beholding. We are not transformed by our doing. We are transformed by beholding God's glory that changes us from the inside out. 
When we stare at God's sovereignty and his love for us and his holiness and we see his glory on display, if we stare at his sovereignty like we did last week, then we see we have nothing to fear. It changes us. Staring at his sovereignty and his control for us changes our hearts so that we are not anxious. Um, There are so many ways that we see this happen, but God's glory is what changes us. And we've already seen that in these two chapters, that Jesus is glorious. The question is, are you staring at him enough to be changed by him? If if you see things in your life that are not changing, don't try and change them on your own. You change them by beholding Jesus and being transformed by him. Number two, Jesus perfectly displays the glory of God. Jesus perfectly displays the glory of God. There are so many ways that chapter one and two say this. Um, The Word was with God. The Word was God. Uh, Jesus uh, has explained, has interpreted, has preached to us who the Father is. God's glory is what changes us. So the question is, how can we stare at God's glory the best? What's the best place to fix our eyes, to to look at something, to stare at something? Where where should we fix our eyes if we want to stare at God's glory? The answer, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the perfect display of the glory of God. Look to him, listen to him, do what he says, and stare at him in such a way that he changes your heart. And number three, our greatest need is to see and savor Jesus Christ. Our greatest need is to see and to savor Jesus Christ. Not his signs, not the benefits that he brings, him alone. Our greatest need is to see and to savor Jesus. God's glory is what changes us. Jesus perfectly displays the glory of God. We've clearly seen that in chapter 1 and 2. And so what do we do? Our greatest need is to see him, to savor him, to say he is better than anything this world has to offer. And he is. If you remember when we first started this sermon series, I quoted C.S. Lewis in Prince Caspian. um, When Lucy sees Aslan bigger and bigger and bigger, and she says, you've grown And Aslan says, no, I haven't grown. I've stayed the same. Um, Your vision of me has changed. You are seeing me bigger and bigger. Jesus is not changing. He's unchanging. He stays the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's our sight that needs to change. It's our beholding of him that needs to change. And I pray that as we go through this gospel and continue to make our way through it, Jesus would just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and more massive and more massive in our minds. So much so that by the end of our time in in John, I pray that all the cares of this world would fade away in light of his glory. All the sin that you might love and you might coddle and you might not want to give up would be so foolish and dreadful and evil and wicked in your sight when you stare at Jesus Christ. I pray that Jesus would get bigger and bigger and bigger in our minds. So, to that end, I thought that a fitting way to end our time this morning, again, just a summary, totally different than what we would normally do, is just to ask God to open our eyes to see Jesus and to behold him. And as we're asking him to do that in our hearts, I want to go practically to God's word to just see him. So if you have your Bibles, Colossians chapter 1, let's go there. We're just going to go to three passages very quickly. Colossians chapter 1. I want Jesus to be on display in such a way that he would be bigger and bigger in our minds and we'd savor him right now. Colossians chapter 1, 
starting in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he will himself come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. Go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. Just verses 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory. He is the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Lastly, Revelation chapter 1. We'll end here. Revelation chapter 1, starting in verse 9. This is the one that we worship. This is our Savior. This is our Master. This is our Lord. This is our Friend. This is our Jesus. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation and kingdom and perseverance, which are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet saying, write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. 
In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Father, I thank you for your Son, that he walks amongst the lampstands even now, that he is the head of the church, that he controls the church, he guides the church, he loves his church, he died to purchase his bride and to cleanse her. God, cleanse us. By beholding, may we become more like your son. We want to look like him, we want to think like him, we want to talk like him. We love him, but we don't love him enough. I praise you that our Standing before you in this moment is not dependent upon our love. It's dependent upon Jesus' love. And that we can rest in that reality. So we say, um, with, the, with the father of the demon-possessed boy, we say, I believe, help my unbelief. We intellectually know who you are and we do believe. But God, we need to believe more fully. We need to believe who you are truly day in and day out in such a way that we would be changed, we would be transformed. God, I thank you for just a a morning to be able to enjoy reading your word and um, skimming through what we've studied thus far. Thank you for the glory of your word and that we have learned so much on our journey through this book. And I pray that even now as we turn to you and as we ask you to be our vision, that you and your grace would make it so. We love you, God. We love you, Jesus. And we pray it in your name.